You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Literary people do not like to repeat the same word in English. Uh, Maybe you learned that in high school English. Don't use the same word in every second sentence. But the writers of the Old Testament loved to use the same words. It was their way of often highlighting things. Uh, So that's the clue, okay? There'll be a quiz afterwards, but that's the clue. This is a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, uh, in the Scottish Sam competition that might rival the Eurovision Song Contest, I suspect, in terms of understanding the text, I think Psalm 121 probably ranks as Psalm number two in Scotland. Next to the 23rd Psalm, Psalm 121 uh, probably has been used in more book titles and probably is the Psalm that is best known for the rather curious reason that Scotland is a country with hills and mountains. And uh, just like the text this morning that David Robertson was expounding, so in the passage this evening, the reference to the hills is usually misunderstood by most Scots. We look to the hills because when we look to the hills, we feel strength coming to us from the hills, and we are able to go on. And as we'll see in the 121st Psalm, the hills were not the source of the psalmist's strength. They were the location of the psalmist's enemies and hindrances. This psalm is the second in a series of 15 psalms that we've begun to study the thing that marks them all out quite uniquely in the Psalter is that they all have the same little title. It is virtually identical in all of the Psalms, a Psalm of Ascents, or in this case, a Psalm for Ascents. And clearly, the, the individual or group of individuals or tradition of individuals who eventually brought the Psalter together put these psalms 
in this particular location in the fifth book of the Psalter because they intended them to be used as a series of psalms on particular occasions. There's some debate as to exactly what that occasion was. My own conviction, I think it's probably the majority conviction among Old Testament scholars, uh, of whom I am not one, uh, that these psalms were brought together in order to be used as a little hymn book for the occasion of pilgrimage from the different parts of the land up to the city of Jerusalem. Remember that the male members of the congregation of Israel spread about the country were expected to come up to Jerusalem for the feasts. And uh, if you don't know that from the Old Testament, you probably know it from the New Testament. And Jesus, our Lord Jesus, going to His first feast when He was 12 years old. And in a sense, I think this psalm is particularly suited to somebody who's going to their first feast, somebody who is looking forwards to the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and yet has some anxiety and burden about going there. Uh, One of the things we saw last time was there are some lovely design patterns in these 15 psalms. The middle psalm is a psalm of Solomon. There are two psalms of David on each part of that. And I said last Lord's Day evening, I think if I remember rightly, that there may be 15 psalms for what may seem to us to be the rather odd reason, but if you remember how interested the Old Testament is in numbers and how fascinated Jewish people have been with number and with music uh, and with order and with design, then it might make a good deal of sense to understand that there are 15 psalms because there were 15 words in the high priest's blessing that would be given to God's people at this time exclusively in Jerusalem. And one of the reasons I think that that is the possible reason, it's a kind of incidental, interesting reason, one of the reasons that makes me attracted to it is that the big words in the Aaronic benediction at the end of Numbers chapter 6 are actually the big words in these 15 Psalms. We caught just a glimpse of that at the end of Psalm 120. There is the psalmist. He's not begun his pilgrimage. He's reflecting on what it means to be a believer in an unbelieving world. And he ends up simply saying, I'm peace. There war. It's almost like a little child speaking who hasn't uh, been able to work out all the connecting words. Me, peace, them war. And of course, this was why one would go on pilgrimage in order to uh, hear those wonderful words. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. 
Now, when I say that, if you're familiar with that benediction, it's often used in the church, you may immediately latch on to another big word that's used in the Aaronic benediction. The Lord bless you, and the Lord keep you. And that's why I read from the English Standard Version, because uh, better than the New International Version, it brings out the fact that in the 121st Psalm, the big word is the word keep. It's used, I think, seven different times in the course of eight verses. This is a psalm about the Lord being our keeper. It's a psalm about the watch care of our covenant Lord. And you can almost imagine that uh, if this psalm was used when the people were gathering on their way to Jerusalem, uh, think about it this way. Here's a, here's a group of 50 coming from one village, and as they go along the road, they, they meet another group of 50 from another village. And so, the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger as they're on their way to Jerusalem. And uh, since there are children there, they do the kind of thing that parents, at least in my day, when I was a child, used to do in the car when you said, how long is it going to be? Are we anywhere near there? Let's sing Old MacDonald Had a Farm Again, or uh, some song that we would sing together. And you can almost imagine the tradition building up as they're on their way there. And uh, the younger ones, perhaps, uh, perhaps the 12-year-olds, always were to sing this on their first pilgrimage, I lift my eyes to the hills as I go to Jerusalem. Where is my help going to come from? And then all of those parents and all of those who had been on pilgrimage before, as they gathered now hundreds, thousands of them perhaps, as it were, in one marvelous unity of song, singing back, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And you can almost imagine a 12-year-old boy looking up at his dad and saying, I feel a lot better now that we've sung the 121st Psalm. The interesting thing, I've been thinking about this psalm, you'll be glad to know, during the course of the week before preaching on it, but the interesting thing about this psalm is that in a sense there's absolutely nothing profound about the psalm, but there is something massively profound about the truth that the psalm teaches us. I don't know what picture you have in mind about the way you study the Bible yourself. Um, I like to ring as much as I possibly can out of a passage of Scripture. And you know, you, could, you can ring and ring and ring this passage, chew it like a dog uh, chewing a bone. And in a sense, there is, uh, there's nothing very profound about it. It's a lovely psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. It's an exquisitely simple psalm. But that, of course, is the point, isn't it? It's actually the simplest, most basic things about the gospel, about the Christian faith, about the Bible. 
that takes us longest to learn. And we think we've learned them. And then we discover in some circumstance or experience that we hadn't really learned them. And we need to keep digging down into the foundations. And of course, although at first sight this looks like a psalm for, for uh, the novice, a psalm maybe for the new Christian. I still have a pretty vivid memory as a, as a 14-year-old schoolboy of being a one-week-old baby Christian and thinking, this is ab- it's so ghastly to be so young and to meet people who have been Christians three years and thinking, you know, will I ever get that old? But you know, that's true in the whole of life, isn't it? Uh, each day we, we wake up and there is, there's the part of the pilgrimage for that day and circumstances that come our way during the course of the year. And for all of us, there are uncharted territories that we still have to go through in the Christian life. And so, no matter where we are along the road of our great pilgrimage, the stage that lies immediately before us is a pathway we haven't trodden and will bring us experiences that we may not have expected. And so, the simplicity of this psalm is so helpful to us because it brings us back to this basic principle, this promise that is given to anyone who has these concerns about where the future pathway is to lie, that the Lord is the one who is our keeper. So, the psalm begins in the first two verses with what we might call the voice of inexperience. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where's my help going to come from? Do you remember the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves? The odd thing is, if you go from Jericho to Jerusalem, you can fall among thieves as well. And these are the kinds of concerns that there are. Uh, What large situations are going to confront me? And he's wondering where his help is going to come from. But he's a person of faith. And he begins with this, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You can go a long journey on that simple truth, actually, can't you? That there is nowhere I can plant my feet that is not already the Lord's. I sometimes think that as a matter of fact, the Scripture teaches us the only people who are ultimately safe on this planet are the Lord's people, because they are the only ones who are trusting in the fact that if He has created the heavens and the earth, there there is no part of this planet and therefore no part of our experience in time on this planet that He does not know, that He does not perfectly understand that underneath it all, we have a security because we trust in the one who created the heavens and 
the earth. And it's in that context that the the voice of great experience, the voice of someone who has gone the pilgrimage or that part of the pilgrimage before and has tasted in their experience the reality of the Aaronic blessing, the Lord will keep you. That's the voice that dominates most of the psalm to bring this pilgrim on and to say, well, we have been this way before, and here are the things that we have discovered. My parents had all kinds of uh, wise sayings that they passed on to me. Um, Some of them were not exactly complimentary. My father used to end discussions by telling me my head was full of broken glass. And I think he meant by that, most people have a bottle broken on top of their head, but somebody broke a bottle inside of your head. And uh, one of my mother's wise sayings that I remember from, I guess, about the age of seven is that there is no substitute for experience, which is the first time I realized it was a very unjust and unfair world, since at seven years old one has very little experience. But there is something about the Christian way, isn't there, where there is no substitute for experience. One of the benedictions of being in a fellowship where there are people over the age of 30 is that you can see and taste and share experience. And so, the voice of experience responds about the Lord's watch care and essentially says three things about it. The first thing is this, that there is no interruption to the Lord's watch care. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He wants to emphasize that uh, there are no gaps in the Heavenly Father's watch care over our lives. He does not nod off on the job of watching over His people, knowing the way He takes with us and knowing the ways in which He will lead us. And uh, it's interesting how He puts it, isn't it? He who keeps Israel. Uh, I think here at least we're meant to wonder, now what Israel are you talking about here? Uh, Are you reflecting here, uh, man of experience, on on those 40 years of desert wanderings that uh, were about to begin in the passage in Exodus we were reading, and how the Lord brought them through those many years, and their sandals didn't wear out. There was daily food for them. In the midst of their many disobediences, His hand was still upon them, and He was caring for them, and He was watching over Israel, even giving them a manifestation of that watch care by the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. What an assurance! Yet I think lying behind that is probably the visitation of the Lord to Jacob at Bethel. You remember when He appeared to him and reaffirmed His covenant with him, 
and then gave him the very assurance that is reiterated in these verses, that he would be with him in his comings and with him in his goings. There's a logic here um, that the Jewish people loved. Um, The Greek philosophers loved it as well. We still use the logic. Uh, We argue from the greater to the lesser. Or as if I remember rightly, the Jewish people said, from the heavier to the lighter. If you are going to do this, the harder thing, then surely you will also be able to do this, the smaller thing. What is the larger thing? The larger thing is that for 40 years, the Lord had a watch care over Israel through the desert and kept His promise to bring them into the promised land. The larger thing is that He took hold of Jacob, the twister, in His going out and in His returning and transformed him into Israel, a man who had wrestled with God and prevailed and was abundantly blessed. And in the Psalms, of course, the psalmists keep returning to this, that he is the God of Jacob, and he watches over men and women and young people who are utterly unworthy of his watch care. And if He has done that for them, this is what they are singing back. If He has done that for them, then surely you can trust Him to do exactly the same for you. So, His watch care in verses 3 and 4 is without interruption. And of course, the reason why He puts it in this rather interesting way, He neither slumbers nor sleeps, Incidentally, did any, has it ever crossed your mind that God slept? I mean, maybe you thought of that when you were four years old. I wonder if God sleeps. But it's never crossed your mind since then that God would sleep. So why does He put it this way? Why does He emphasize God never slumbers nor sleeps? Well, there's a fairly obvious reason, isn't there? It is because uh, sometimes he seems to slumber and sleep, at least from the psalmist's point of view. Sometimes he doesn't seem to be conscious of where we are and what we're doing and what's happening to us, and and we want to cry out to God, oh God, will you not wake up and do something about this? And these experienced psalmists are saying, listen, he never slumbers nor sleeps. And even although it's true that there are times when you feel your foot is slipping because He doesn't seem to be doing anything about your situation, you can be absolutely certain that He is watching, not sleeping. Isn't that what the ironic benediction said? The Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. He's watching you. 
And so the encouragement is to us as, as little children on the way to be looking up and saying, are you watching, Father? I can't see your face, but I trust that you're watching because you've given me your word that you will watch me. So there's a watch care that knows no interruption. And there is a watch care, the psalmist says in verses 5 and 6, that has no limitation. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, and the moon shall not strike you by night. Now, what's the focus here? I wonder if any of you have uh, what used to be called buttery fingers. You know, somebody threw a ball at you, and for some strange reason, your fingers start twitching, and you're not able to catch it and hold it. There is some kind of, uh, and you see this in every class at school, don't you? There are always children in the class who seem to be so uncoordinated, they cannot catch a ball when it's thrown to them. And we, at least we used to say in my day, buttery fingers. And I think there is an analogous uh, Christian syndrome I call it, yes, buttery fingers. It is when you read the promises of God and you hear the promises of God and you say, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, my circumstances are different. No one has ever been in my situation. If you only knew what I'm going through. And so, what he's saying here is he, as he brings together these opposites, He says, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Doubtless, he is still thinking about the pilgrimage and the blazing heat of the sun and the the sunstroke that would cause, and perhaps the desperate cold of the night in a clear, moonlit sky, and uh, the frostbite that would cause on a pilgrimage. And he's really stretching from one end of the day to the other end of the day and saying there is no moment in those days when God's watch care is not absolutely surrounding His people and over their concerns. So, it is the Samus way of saying like a father to a child. It is the heavenly Father's way of saying as a father to His children. There will be no yes, buts. No yes, buts. Now, you have a yes, but, don't you? You have a lot of yes, buts. Most of us have. We have yes, buttery fingers. There are all the promises of God and the Scriptures, but none of them seem to meet my situation. Well, you must have stopped reading your Bible. There are the promises of God for you in every conceivable situation. The problem is not the inadequacy of God's watch care over my life. The problem is that I have, yes, buttery fingers, and I am not doing what our forefathers used to describe as acting faith in the promises of God. I've got hold of this 
half-baked idea that faith is passive. I, I lie back and I let it happen. I haven't grasped the biblical teaching that faith is active, that I need to get my hands around the promises of God and stir up my soul to say, this promise I will stake my life on. And uh, that's the cure for the yes-buttery syndrome in the life of the Christian believer. And we need to act faith. Uh, There are situations when the sun is shining where you need to act faith. Problems arise, or people demean your Christian faith. And the temptation is to simply withdraw. But the teaching of the Word here is to take hold of the promises of God in the situation. And so, he's encouraging us to understand that there is no interruption to God's watch care, and there is no exception to God's watch care. And then in the last two verses, he stresses that there is no limitation to God's watch care. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your whole life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. It's really a version of what Paul says in Romans 8, isn't it? Now that Christ has come, He sees it so clearly. I can actually see it in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, that His watch care over His child was without limitation. It never had any interruption. There was no exception to it. But yet I see the dark experiences Jesus went through, and therefore I understand that He must be working everything together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His promise. We've sometimes said when we've read the Psalms that whenever we read them, we should think about Jesus and ask, well, how would Jesus have read this Psalm? Remember how Isaiah says that the Father morning by morning would waken Jesus and instruct Jesus from His Word. Would Jesus have made of the 121st Psalm? You know, perhaps that the the second half of Luke's gospel all takes place around Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. From that moment that Luke tells us he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And there was, some, there was something about Jesus from that point onwards. Something happened to Jesus at that time. He reached a new stage, perhaps, of of clarity of all that it would mean for him to go to Jerusalem. From that time, he began to teach his disciples he was going to suffer and die, and then he was going to rise again. And uh, I want you to imagine the night before he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem, thinking about the 121st Psalm. I lift my eyes to the hills. This journey is going to be full of struggle and opposition. 
It is going to lead me just outside of the city of Jerusalem there to the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to enter into an experience absolutely unparalleled in human history. I'm going to gaze into a cup that is filled with the judgment of God. I'm going to be mocked and exposed and beaten and despised and crucified. And I've never gone that way before. Oh, my child, my watch care will have no interruption. My watch care will brook no exception. My watch care over you will be without limitation. Then, Father, I will set my face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And so, this was a psalm for Jesus, just as it's a psalm for us. Actually, it is the psalm that David Livingstone, perhaps our most famous missionary in Scotland, opened on the day he went to Africa and read to his family. Those were different days for missionaries. You didn't get on a 747 and arrive in your destination that evening and uh, use Skype to call home. In many instances, you left not knowing if or when you would return. Imagine that. Imagine later on David Livingston quoting from the last verses of Matthew's gospel, Christ's commission to go into all the world and saying to his disciples, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Livingston saying, that is the word of a gentleman, and he has never failed to keep his promise yet. That's what this simple but beautiful psalm is really all about. It's all about the Lord's watch care over His children on the pilgrimage and every stage of it until He brings them home to glory. There's something else that's interesting here about the background to this psalm. You know, the ironic benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. That is described in Numbers chapter 6 as the Lord putting His name upon His people. The Lord puts His name upon His people. There is another occasion when the Lord puts His name upon His people, isn't there? In baptism. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize them in the threefold name of the Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you always till the end of the age. And this is therefore what it means for us. This is a description of the baptized life. 
This is a description of a Christian pilgrim who understands that they have been baptized into the threefold name, and the Lord has put His name upon them. And you know, if you're a father and you've put your name on somebody, they're yours forever. They're your responsibility forever. You know, you go off to university and you wave cheerio to the folks and, uh, you know, you do diligence and you call home once a week, or in my case, write home once a week in response to my mother's two letters a week to me and so on and so forth, and you, you kind of walk out of their life. And until you're my age, you've no idea what you've done to them, no idea whatsoever. And it's as well, you've no idea what you've done to them. You've no idea that when, when you uh, went round the corner or got on the train, or if you're well enough off to have driven a car away, they went back into the house and sat down and ached because they loved you and cared for you, wanted to be near you, still wanted to provide for you, wanted to know that you were all right. And if that's how an earthly parent feels, how much more the heavenly parent cares for the children for whom His eternal Son died on the cross. And that's the point Paul makes after saying, we know that God works everything together for good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. How are we sure of that? Is it because the way is easy? No, there are mountains, and there are difficulties, and there's the sun, and there's the moon, and there's the enemies of the day, and the monsters of the night. No, we know this is true. In a way, the psalmist did not yet know it is true because if He spared not His own Son, but gave Him up to the cross for us, we can be sure He will with Him freely give us all things. If He's carried the heavy load for us to the cross, He'll carry the light load of our lives on His shoulders all the way home. Because is this an Americanism? I think I heard American fathers say to me about the, the girl their son was dating. She's a keeper. She's a keeper. Well, the Lord is a keeper. And if you're His, He's your keeper. And there's no limitation to His watch care no exceptions, and no end. And He's demonstrated that by giving everything He has to us, His Son to bring us pardon, His Spirit to bring us home. He doesn't have anything else to give to you. That's the glory of the gospel. If you're His He's going to keep you forever and ever. Amen.
Heavenly Father, what grace You show to us and love, and how we thank You that there are passages in Scripture that are a challenge to our minds, and we feel that we never get to the bottom of them because the passages themselves are so profound, and, and yet there are passages like this where everything seems so simple. The simplest can understand. The newest believer can understand because you want it to be this way. You want us to stretch us and to grow us and to teach us more and more about yourself. But you know that your best way of doing this is the simplest way by telling us again and again and again that you love us so much, that you mean to keep us forever. And we praise you for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.